We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What we've sought to do this summer is to take a moment to remind us who we are and what God has called us to. We've been meeting here in this place for about 18 months, and uh, when we began as a, a core team talking and dreaming about what God was calling us to do here in this region, we quickly identified, and we spent months before ever long meeting publicly, talking about what we believed it meant to be the church. And we, we came to the conclusion that our identities, who we were in Christ, is that we were a family of missionary disciples. That if we are a people, imagine a tree, if we are rooted in the gospel, then the truth of the gospel is that we're family. We've been made heirs to the kingdom of grace. We're called to be missionaries, that we've been made heirs because of the a missionary God who stepped out of heaven, moved into the neighborhood, and came and lived and atoned for our sin. And then we're disciples. We're called to be a people who are continually growing in our love of the Word and who God is. And the Spirit is continually revealing us, changing us, and growing us. So we concluded that if you're missing one of those elements, family, missionary, or disciple, you're missing something about what it is to be a church. You can be a family of disciples. You can be a people who love one another, care for one another, or growing in the Word. But if growing in the Word isn't leading you to go to the neighbor next door, you're missing a point. You can be missionary disciples or missionary family. You can be a people who are, love one another, are really active, but if we're not growing in our understanding of the depths of the gospel, we're missing something. So the last three weeks, uh, we've talked about family, missionary, and disciple and how Scripture calls us to that. Those are our identities. And then after we had been together a while, we started to talk about if those are our identities, if that's who we are, then what does that mean? How do we live in light of that? And so we call that our values. And today is the start of our value series. As a Christian, we have many values, but we sought to identify what are six values, six things that we uniquely feel God has called us to hold in high regard as a gospel family. And the first one we're going to talk about today is hospitality. Uh, and we're going to talk, and then over the weeks to come, we're going to talk about the reality that we, we seek to be generous because of the generous grace that has been given to us. We believe in simplicity because the gospel is all we need, and so on and so forth. And then after we talk about our values, we'll spend the month of August talking about our mission. If this is who we are, and this is what we're called to live, then what do we pray, what do we hope will happen? What do we believe will happen as a result of that? And our mission is to be, create a movement of making disciples, mobilizing missionaries, and multiplying churches. We believe that this is who we are rooted in the gospel, and this is how we live. This is what God tells us He will do with that. So I just want to give you kind of that overview. That's what we're doing this summer, and that's where we are today. So the start today is the beginning of our value series, and we're going to be talking about hospitality. Romans 12, 13 says, Contribute to the needs of the saints. Practice hospitality. Practice hospitality. Literally, that term practice hospitality is a verb that implies continuous action. 
practice this. Be about this. And then in 1 Peter 4, 8-9, it says, Above all, hold unfailing your love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. And get this, it says, not only practice hospitality, he brings that statement back, practice hospitality ungrudgingly to one another. And so this term ungrudgingly is important. Because it tells us that this directive, like the call isn't to adhere to this legalistic command, but no, it's to be transformed into a different person. Like all of us could grudgingly oblige by this command, but no, like what he's calling us to is to be transformed by the renewal of our minds in a way that leads us out of an overflow of what Christ has done for us to live in such a way towards others. To be transformed. To a person who reflects Christ. And so Romans 15, 1-7, today paints a bit of a picture for us of what that means. And we're going to talk about the we love because He loved, we welcome because He welcomed, and we invite because He invites. So we love because He loved. This is literally a, a Scripture quote. 1 John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. This is the true, maybe the shortest condensed version of the Gospel. The Gospel is the good news of what God has done for us. That God so loved us, He sent His only Son to live a perfect life, to die a brutal death, so that there would no longer be condemnation for us, but everlasting joy in Christ. He's loved us from the beginning. We love because He loved us. We don't, it's not vice versa of that. It's not He loved us because we were lovely. No, we love and anything good that flows from us flows from us because He loved us from the beginning. Not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of His abundant mercy. And as the family of God, we have been given the gift of the Spirit who helps us to love like the Father. I mean, that's part of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive me my sins that I might forgive those who sin against me. Like we, we need that help to live in such a way. Our love for our neighbor, both inside and outside the church, is not a love that's attached to what they have to offer. But it's a love that is motivated by all we have been offered in Christ. I'll put it this way. For the believer... Love is not currency. Because if it were, our debt would still surely be owed. But for us, like love, the, the, the love currency thing doesn't work out well for us. Our debt's been paid in Christ. Our, His love for us isn't on the basis of what we bring to the table, but on the basis of just pure, unadulterated love. And so our love is not based on value, but it's based on grace. Just this week, even in preparing for this sermon, uh, man, God hit me and just gave me a brief picture of what this means. Uh, I, I, you guys know, man, like if you, if you know me, you know my kids, you know my son. My son has some unique needs uh, that can be a challenge, and I'll just be real, this was a challenging week. I won't even go to details of a certain mess I walked into, but I, I'll just tell you I have a lot stronger stomach than I did before I had kids, and specifically before Moses. And this week, in the midst of of kind of cleaning up, walking through this difficult situation. Um, we, I get to the kind of the end, and, and Moses is smiling, laughing at me, and it occurred to me, just even thinking through this text, and I told my wife after, I just realized in that moment that, like, I love my son in a way that's different than the way I love any other human in the whole world. 
Moses, my, my son is not bringing to me all that he's going to do for me. Like, probably not going to be taking care of me when I'm old. Like, that, that's not going to happen. Like, my son, my love for my son is purely on the basis that he's my son. And as a, as a, as a, like, it's taken me a while to get to that place. As an adopted parent, like, that's part of something you walk through. But that's where my, my love for him comes from. And I realized, like, in that moment, like, that's me and God. Like, I have nothing to bring to the Father but brokenness over and over again. I am a complete, total mess, was more than I am now, am more than I one day will be. And yet, God's love for me is not connected to any of that. It's just His pure, divine love for me as His Son, and He made a way for me in Jesus. And this kind of love is explained here in verses 1-2. through We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves. I want to provide a little clarification on the context of what we're walking into here in verse 1. Verse divisions and chapter divisions in the New Testament, it's, it's important to know they were added centuries after the Bible was written. Okay, so chapter divisions were added in 1205, and in the New Testament, verse divisions were added in 1551. And so this is important to understand because there's some debate Chapter divisions are not always put in the most ideal places. And today we see an example of this. Most scholars agree that the break that starts at 15 would have been better situated at the conclusion of verse 13. Because 14 is just running right into number one. That really wasn't a pause. And because, this issue, because the issue addressed in 14, that of weak and strong Christians continues from 14 right on to 15 where we are today. So his point in verse 1, about weak, those who were weak have an obligation, is a point that he has been trying to make throughout the previous chapter. So I'll just give you a quick overview of that. Romans 14, 15. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. Romans 14, 19. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And then Romans 14, 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The point that Paul is making is that a mature believer should be willing to forego his personal liberties or comforts if that is what is necessary for the good of a weaker brother or sister. And by weaker brother, in this context, he is referring to those who are coming into the church but are still struggling with legalism. That's why he's talking about meat. Like Paul is not, he's not here, he's not talking about just vegetarianism for the sake of it, but he's talking about in, in this day, Meat was probably seen a lot like alcohol is in the church today. It's a divisive issue amongst the body of Christ. Meat would have been the thing in that day um, because many, there were many different theories. Some felt that meat wasn't kosher. They were still hold, kind of holding on to their Jewish legalism. Others, there was a lot of debate about how do you tell if meat was, came from sacrifice or was part of a sacrifice and was that right or was that wrong? So there was all this division about if one should even eat meat. And Paul's just encouraging the church, like, do whatever is best for the building up of a brother. Be willing to sacrifice personal liberty, personal comfort, as a reflection of what Christ has sacrificed for you. And so in verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. And the world tells us to prove that we are right, relentlessly, about everything it is the reason that i am on a social media sabbatical because it's just overwhelmed by it. like the world tells us you got to prove you're right about everything but the gospel tells us to love our neighbor 
sacrificially in a way that builds them up. And this sacrifice isn't about trying to make the Gospel more appealing, but it's about putting the Gospel on display as it transforms the way we live and love. See, Paul has made clear he won't budge on the Gospel or its implications. His goal is not to please man. He has said as much. He, say, he tells us, like, if, I, if my goal were to please man, I would not be following Jesus. However, his point is that God is glorified as we lay down our lives as a reflection of the One who has done so for us. And he explains that in verse 3. For Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This Scripture reminder kind of seems a little out of place until you consider the results of living in such a way as God's people. It seems clear to me that Paul knew about some things that were going on in the church and and wanted to encourage. Two ways, verse 3, guides how we love and encourages the body of Christ. First, he reminds us of the sacrificial love of Christ. Jesus would have been fully justified in commanding obedience of all and demanding it by force. In fact, his disciples are often frustrated with him because he doesn't do that. Like, that's the reason John the Baptist from prison sends his disciples, like, go ask Jesus, are you sure? Like, are you the one? Because I think John was pretty sure that the one would have just taken over by military force by now. But Jesus is just going around healing people, loving people, and John's like, man, before I die, I just want to make sure, am I getting this right? And the disciples over and over again are just waiting for Jesus to announce and to put, throw his hammer down and they're debating about who gets to sit at his right hand when that happens. Everybody expected this kind of military takeover, but Jesus demonstrated something totally different. And the truth is, that won't always be the case. One day, God will come in glory with his name tattooed across his thigh and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But the man Jesus Christ He didn't please Himself in order that He might demonstrate the way that we are to live. And second, the pain that is born from living this kind of way has already been carried on our behalf. The Scripture that He reminds us of is that the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on Me. The Gospel is of great offense. It's a great offense to those who are in love with the world. Whether they're in love with the legalism of the world, like Paul's addressing here, many of the most worldly people I know are the most religious people. Because what seems like religion is really just world mentality of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Legalistic religion is the most worldly thing there is. Or whether it's license, whether it's those who because of that have been drawn to the uttermost end of the spectrum. Whatever your drug of choice is, the gospel is of great offense to either one. It tells the one who is in love with license that you don't live for yourself, but you submit to the holy God whose ways are perfect. And it tells the one who's legalistic, you are not near as good as you think you are. You are far worse, and you cannot accomplish anything by your own power. And the Gospel demands that we leave behind such things and give all we have to Jesus. And for some, that cost will always be too high. Even for some who have been rescued, they will fall back into their drug of choice and might even walk away for a time. And here Paul reminds us that the hurts we feel when that happens 
When those who might turn away or scoff at our pursuit of Christ-likeness or our encouragement of them towards Christ-likeness, that that hurt, like that pain, there's, there's no hurt like church hurt. Most of our church understands that. Like We've talked about that a lot. But here he reminds the church that church hurt should not prevent us from moving forward because he has already, that pain, that reproof, like it's, it's already been borne by Christ. Therefore, we, not, we, we don't need to, see, to, to cease living lives of obedience. We don't need to fear being hurt again. Like ultimately, Christ has borne that reproach. To follow Jesus is an assurance of disappointment and heartache. He assures us of as much. He demonstrates as much. How anyone could believe that following Jesus, the one who was homeless, abandoned, all his friends, you know, his friends all rejected him, endured horrible pain. Like to believe that following him will result in anything but disappointment and struggle and heartache, it's just a failure to open our scriptures. Yet, because of the gospel, we're reminded that the betrayals we experience, they fell on him. Like he, he bore that weight, he bore the hurt, he bore every sin that would ever be sinned against us. Because that, we can be free to not only love, but we invite because He has invited us. Verse 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Paul reminds us that Christ fulfilled the promise of God. That all of Scripture from the beginning to the end is ultimately about Jesus and the loving Father's plan to rescue His beloved children. And Christ fulfilled all of the promises of God. He is the one that all of Scripture points to and makes much of. This whole book is about Jesus. And through the atoning work of Christ, Scripture goes from condemnation to invitation. Scripture goes from, like the law of God goes from a reminder of how short you fall from perfect holiness and it turns into a reminder that those standards have already been met in Christ and therefore we are invited into the kingdom of God. God being rich in mercy met the standard we could never meet. He paid our debt so that now He tells us through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Through endurance. Because this is not supposed to be easy. Like anybody who ever preaches or any book you ever read that leads you to believe that following Jesus leads to an easy life, just toss it. Use it to get your fire started because that's not the truth of the Gospel. We don't need endurance for a life of lavish luxury. Your best life is not now. It's just not. And nowhere does Scripture say that. Instead, it encourages towards what I like to call sanctified stubbornness. Stay the course. Don't lose heart. Continue to point one another towards Jesus and the great hope that we are ultimately living for here now. Through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures. Endurance is built through the power of God's Word. Through the Spirit, Scripture has power. It's not just words for those who are in Jesus. Because of the gift of the Spirit imparted onto us, God reveals Himself and speaks to us directly through His Word. You have no possession that is of more value and holds more power and is capable of more than the very Bible that sits on your nightstand. And He encourages and reminds the church of that through endurance 
through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And through God's Word, He continues to invite our friends, to invite our neighbors into a living hope. All Christians are missionaries. Some missionaries are called to go overseas, but I will tell you, I would never endorse sending anybody overseas if they haven't gone across the street. You live in the place you live. You work in the place you work. You're a part of the co-op you're a part of. You're coaching the ball team you're coaching because in the divine providence of God, He placed you there incarnationally to be the presence of God in that place. We invite others into our homes and around our tables as a response to the Lord's invitation to us. I will continuously say as believers, we should be known as the ones who throw the best party because we have the most to celebrate. Nobody else has, nobody else has real hope to celebrate. We do. And so would we celebrate all the more and be known for such in the places God has put us? We invite because He's invited us. And lastly, we welcome because He has graciously welcomed us, continues to welcome us. Verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a really important word that starts verse 5, and it's the word may. Note that in 5 and 6, Paul changes course on whom he is talking to. Up until this point, he has been seeking to guide and instruct the church and give them direction. But here at the beginning of verse 5, he stops and realizes he has reached the end of what his efforts and his word can accomplish. And so he transitions to appealing to the Lord to make these things true. Verse 5 is the beginning of Paul stops talking to the church and begins to pray, so Lord, make all of these things true. May the God of endurance and encouragement May the God of endurance, like He encourages us to endure, but then He acknowledges who the God of endurance is, where that power comes from. If we're going to look to Christ, God must incline our, our, our hearts, our eyes to look to Christ. He must open our eyes to see His glory. If we're going to meditate on God's Word, we have to acknowledge that He has to incline our hearts towards His Word. If we're going to endure and be encouraged, God must give us endurance and encouragement through His Word. And if we're going to have hope that sustains that kind of love, God must make it abound through the Holy Spirit. Gospel hospitality cannot be achieved in and of itself. Yes, we can be nice neighbors. Yes, we can be a generous people. But outside of Christ, we cannot, I, we cannot invite anybody into a real hope. We can be the nicest people on the block, but if we're not bringing people, if, we, if we're not pointing people towards something that's eternal and outlives this place, we're not really inviting them into anything. We are dependent on the Spirit's leading to live in such a way that our actions testify of Him. And it's through this kind of Spirit-led love that God is abundantly glorified in a world of brokenness. This point, this transition to may, is really important for a people who are obsessed with what we can control. I've, had, I've confessed uh, both to Alex and my wife in the last month that this last year, man, I've just been really drawn to activities that I can control. 
like if I do this, this happens. I've grown to just love and crave that. If I follow these instructions, this engine will start, and I love that. If I eat these things, this will happen, like scientifically. I love that, and I love that because holy and divine things don't work like that. There's no, if you do this, this will happen. God calls us to be faithful, to plant seed, but we don't make seeds grow. We don't rain water down from the sky. We are farmers praying for rain. like that. We're not entrepreneurs. We're farmers just planting seed and begging God to bring the rain and make the harvest grow. And He does so as He pleases as part of a providential plan that we may or may not see the fruits of in our lifetime. Welcome to church planting. Thank you all for being here. Verse 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. When we talk about, as we close today, when we talk about valuing hospitality, we are not merely expressing a desire for good human relationships. You can find good human relationships in the midst of your sports families, the co-op, bars, country clubs, or even cults. You can find great human relationships in all of those places. But Paul is talking about God-glorifying relationships. Relationships that make much of the atoning work of Jesus. Hospitality that exalts Christ. This can only be found amongst His bride. That's what makes the bride so special. It is the vessel through which the world sees the Gospel lived out. That's why the Scripture tells us like, they'll know us by our love for one another. That's why we constantly use the term like we want to be a people that live questionable lives and then have answers to the questions that inevitably come. All other fellowship testifies to man, but Christian fellowship testifies to another. It points outward to one who is worthy of our adoration and our praise. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Note that in the verse before, Paul talks about that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, at the conclusion of our service, after our communion time, that's what we're going to do. We're going to, with one voice, sing. And I, I don't know if you noticed, like the song that, that, that Nate sang right before the sermon, it's really, a, it's really a prayer. Like the whole song is an appeal to the Lord to make these things true. It says, one of the, the lines from the, verse, the song that we're going to sing and that Nate's going to lead us in again as we leave here today. Holy, there is no one like you. An acknowledgement of who God is and where He stands above us. There is none beside you. There is no equal in this place. Open up my eyes in wonder. An acknowledgement of our dependence on Him to do the work that we desire and starting internally. And show me who you are and fill me with your heart. And then and lead me in your love to those around me. As we sing that this morning when we close, would we with one voice not only acknowledge and praise the Lord of hosts, but make this appeal to Him? I would encourage you today, and maybe even preparing your hearts for this before this, 
Like, don't just sing the words. But would you pray like these words? Would you sing this prayerfully? Like so much the psalms, so much of prayer is sung. David over and over again is singing his prayers to the Lord. That's what we do when we come and we sing songs. We're asking the Lord to make this so. Lead me in your love to those around me. Would this be our prayer for rooted? Would the wonder of Christ and our eyes being open to such lead to an equal gospel hospitality to the glory of God? Would you pray to that end with me this morning? Father, thank you for your abundant mercy. I have not, I have not earned good standing with you. I certainly have not earned to be called righteous. I have not earned the, to be called a son. I have in no way, shape, or form in any way earned the delight you have when you look upon me. But you did. And I thank you. Thank you that you have made a way for us. That you love us. That you care for us. That you don't just leave us here, but that you are constantly walking with us, empowering us through, through your word, meeting us when we will stop and just be with you. You have words for us of encouragement, of reminder. God, would we seek such things? Would we find our strength and hope in such sweet time? Holy Spirit, we, we pray these things, acknowledging that you're the one that makes things, these things so. Holy Spirit, would you just incline our hearts to desire to be with you? And in those times, would you open our eyes to the wonder of who you are? And God, if you would be so gracious, would you take that and would you turn that into our friends and our neighbors, knowing of the great hope that we have in you? Lord, would you rescue the lost? through us, using us as, as tools for Your grace. Lord, Like you're, you're a gracious dad who desires to bring uh, the kids to work. You don't need us. We slow it down. But you, we, we, we thank You that You delight in being with us and You invite us to sit by You at Your workbench of grace. God, would our homes, would our dinner tables be Your workbench of grace? That's what we ask of You. That's what we beg of You. Would You make this so? I ask, I appeal to You. In the good name of Jesus, amen.